Well, let's continue in worship with the reading of God's word. Today's passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. Lord, we come before you today attentive, ready to hear from you and your word. God, this is a difficult text, a sobering text. Give us wisdom, give us insight, and help us to apply your word. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. Amen. Very good. We'll go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to all of you who are tuning in right now online, all in our sanctuary downstairs too. Let's together take our Bibles and turn to that passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. You know, we're continuing this morning our series Vanity Fair, and it occurred to me recently that I I never really explained to you why I named this series Vanity Fair. So, you know, we're like 12 sermons in, so now I guess I figure I should probably explain it to you. You might think to yourself, oh, Vanity Fair, that's a famous magazine, and Pastor Tony, he's trying to be clever. He's trying to use that name of the, the magazine and linking it to Ecclesiastes because, you know, vanity is a very common word in this book. It shows up... Four times in that passage I just read, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and of course this is the Hebrew word hevel, which means, you know, fog or smoke. But just so you know, Vanity Fair goes way farther back than a magazine. It actually shows up for the first time as a city in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a place where Christian and faithful... These two pilgrims, they're traveling along together. They're trying to get to the celestial city. On their way to the celestial city, they come across this city named Vanity, and it's a place of utter dissolution. There's lots of sin. 
There's lots of crime. There's lots of trading in the marketplace. In fact, in this city called Vanity, there's a year-long fair where people buy and sell goods. That, that's where Vanity Fair comes from. And while Christian and faithful are in this city, and while they're interacting with people in this city, they look incredibly strange to the people of Vanity Fair. They, they, they're dressed in odd garments. They talk funny. They, they don't buy vain things in the fair like other people do. And they don't indulge in sinful behavior like everybody else there. And because of that, people get suspicious of them. And they get arrested. And they actually have to stand before the judge of the city. And the judge's name is Lord Hate Good. I love John Bunyan. And these false witnesses testify about them. The false witnesses, their names are envy, superstition, and pick thank. They give this false testimony, and the false testimony is so convincing that one of the pilgrims, Christian's beloved friend, Faithful, is put to death in Vanity Fair. So that's where the name of this series comes from. And, and you might ask, why do I tell you that story now? Well, one of the key refrains in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The author of this book is trying to show you that life under the sun and without God is vanity. It's, it's honestly quite depressing. And if you put your hope in this vain, short-term existence, you will be completely disappointed. In fact, life will punish you and will leave you empty and despondent. And if you follow the Lord in this world, people will think that you're weird. But soon enough, all of us, believers, unbelievers, all of us end up in the grave. And that's what Ecclesiastes 6 is about. And the truth of the matter is that even Christians deal with what we might call disappointments in this world. There's a lot of disappointments in life. I mean, even people in this room, you follow Christ, even we deal with things like cancer. We deal with things like drought. We deal with things like joblessness. We deal with things like COVID. We deal with things like economic disasters. And so, the, I mean, the question I'm going to ask and answer this morning is, how do we make sense of that in this vanity fair world that we live in? How do we enjoy life and retain hope when we're surrounded, quite frankly, by so much hopelessness. And I know there's a lot of people, Christ, I hear Christians and unbelievers say all the time, you know, it'll get better. Just, you know, just, it'll get better down the road. Can I, can I just tell you, you know, on this side of eternity, as we await Christ coming back, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not going to get better. There's a brokenness in this world that perpetuates and, and we're broken people, and we perpetuate other broken people, and that's not going to get fixed until Christ gets back. Now, that doesn't mean we just accept life as it is. No, we try to make life better, but, but it means that we've got to put our hope in something other than the vanity of this existence under the sun. So, how do we deal with disappointment in life? We're, we experience it as Christians, just like unbelievers. How do we deal with disappointment? How do we deal with discouraging things that take place in our world? Let's talk about that honestly, and then let's find some solutions before we're done. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. 
Here's the outline for this morning. Solomon's going to give you today three disappointing things in life. Here's the first. Solomon first writes about wealth without enjoyment. That's disappointing. And Solomon should know. He's the wealthiest man in the ancient world. What I love about Ecclesiastes and what I love about Solomon, the author of this book, is that Solomon doesn't sugarcoat anything. He tells you like it is. And he doesn't allow you to throw at him cheap platitudes. I mean, he shoots down cheap platitudes like clay pigeons. He doesn't allow you to stick to the platitudes. He tells you, this is life. This is how it is. Deal with it. And one of the disappointing things in life is money without enjoyment. Here's how he says it. Look at verse 1. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. That's like 80% of the Americans in our country. So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So here's the disappointing thing. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor. What else could a man ask for? But God doesn't give him the power to enjoy these things. I don't know why. Maybe the man dies early. That happens. Maybe this man loses his wealth in a bad business venture. We saw that last week. You know, maybe, maybe this man is so obsessed with making money that he doesn't take time to enjoy it. You know, he's, he's Ebenezer Scrooge. And, and he doesn't enjoy what he's been given. He makes lots of money. But that's the end of it. That's all he does. He just makes it. He doesn't spend it. He doesn't enjoy it. I heard a story this last week, a real-life Ebenezer Scrooge. His name was John D. Rockefeller, famous American from the 19th century, the first billionaire, became a billionaire at the age of 53. He had more money than he knew what to do with. And yet he was so obsessed at the age of 53 about money. He became deranged. He started living on crackers and milk and he couldn't sleep he had insomnia because he was so worried about money why would a guy like that be worried about money but then amazingly he had this dramatic change in his life and he started to give all of his money away and when you know it healed him and he started to get better and then he lived lived a rich full life all the way to age 98 because he started giving to philanthropic causes and he he was generous with his wealth Solomon says here that he sees an evil under the sun some people make money and they don't live long enough to enjoy it or they work really really hard and they lose their minds working so hard or they might even lose it to a foreign person that's what he says in verse two a stranger enjoys all this money that's that's autobiographical for Solomon He gave this great kingdom with all this wealth to his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, through his foolishness, lost more than half of his kingdom. To this upstart, to this foreigner named Jeroboam, took took 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel and started a new kingdom. This actually happened to Solomon. As a warning for, I don't know if he prophesied this or knew this was happening or what, but it happens. To that you might say, well, money isn't everything, Pastor Tony. I don't find my purpose in money. Good. I say, I find my purpose in my children. Okay. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, this is 
exaggeration to make a point. Don't try this, okay? <laughs> if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many. By the way, that is, in Hebrew thought, that's the epitome of the greatest life you could live. Lots of kids and lots of years. What else could a, could a Hebrew in Solomon's day ask for? If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Whew. Now, just to warn you, there's a lot of hyperbole in this passage, so don't take this too literally. Solomon's exaggerating to make a point. You know, you can't father a hundred children. I guess maybe Solomon could have, but you, you can't. And then this idea, I know it, if I were to use an analogy like this about a stillborn child, I mean, that's an incredibly sad situation. And that would be very distasteful to make an analogy like that in our day. But for Solomon, in Solomon's day, that was, that was fine. And what he's saying here hyperbolically is that a child who is stillborn never has to deal with the sadnesses of life, never has to deal with the disappointments of life that a person who lives many years has to deal with. And what he's saying here is that you're better off dead than living miserable. Look at verse 4. For the stillborn child comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. In other words, stillborn child doesn't have to deal with the sadness of life. Nobody knows the child's name. It's better than a rich, famous, miserable guy that everybody knows. Moreover, verse 5, the stillborn child has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he, the rich man who's miserable. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. You know, reading Ecclesiastes, it's, it's like, if you read the book from start to finish, it's like going on an emotional roller coaster, you know? It's like it gets really depressing and then it goes up a little bit and you're like, oh, you know, we're turning a corner here and then all of a sudden it goes down again. And he's like, Ugh. And sometimes Solomon's up and sometimes he's down. And this is a part where he's really down. So I heard a commentator this last week that said that Ecclesiastes 6 is the most depressing part of the Bible. And, and maybe it is. I mean, this is pretty dark. Solomon's saying that even if a man lives a thousand years, twice over, even if a man lives as long as Methuselah and, and fathers a hundred children and makes lots and lots of money, in the end it doesn't matter because his destiny is still the same as a stillborn child. They both end up six feet under. And if he lives his life miserably, if he doesn't enjoy life, he's better off dead. It's a particularly bleak assessment of life. You guys ever play that board game, Life? Y'all ever play that with your kids? It's such a silly game. And, you know, there's no card. It's, it's not like you're playing the game and you draw a card and it says vanity of vanity, all is vanity, you know. There's, there's no kind of philosophical reasoning in that book. You might say, thank goodness, because I wouldn't buy it if there was. What, I mean, what happens in that game? You just, you know, you, you go to school. Have y'all played this game? Y'all look confused. 
We've played this game, my family, okay? So you, you, you go to school, you make a little money, you get married, you choose how many kids you want to have, like that really happens. You know, and then you, you make all this money and you retire and whoever retires with the most money wins, right? That's kind of how the game is played. And it's great, you know, it's just play it with your kids. Teaches them to be productive members of society. This is what you're going for, kids. But the problem with that game, there's no nuclear button in that game. There's no card that you draw in the game that says, heart stroke, you die, game over. And yet that happens in life. Right? There's no card in that game where you turn it over and it says, miscarriage, go to grief counseling for years. There's no card in that game that says, death of a spouse, be depressed for six months. There's no card in that game that says, child has leukemia, spend all your money looking for treatments. Yet that happens in life, doesn't it? You know what a better game is to play, a better representation of life? It's actually a little more primitive. You ever play that game, Shoots and Ladders? That's more like life. Because you go a few steps forward, and then all of a sudden you hit a shoot, and it like pushes you back 20 spaces. Y'all know this game, right? This game is good for your sanctification. <laughs> you heard it here first. It's a maddening game. And there's... I remember the board, because Alistair and I used to play it. There's like, it's at the very end, there's this chute that takes you all the way down to the very beginning. So you get, you get all the way to the end, and you're like, please no, please no, please no. And you land on that chute, and it takes you all the way to the beginning. That's life for you right there. That's more like it. And the, the thing about life is that you have setbacks. Sometimes those setbacks are really, really debilitating. And the truly infuriating thing about it, as Solomon is talking about here, is that the end of life, you go into the grave just like everybody else. I mean, if the game of life, if that board game was right, you wouldn't end in retirement with all your money. You would end in the grave. Then everybody would go there. Everybody lose, you all die, game over. Again, nobody would buy the game, if that's what it, but that's what it is. That's life. Look again at verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, do not all go to the same place. What, what's the place? What one place? That's what the Hebrews called Sheol. It's the grave. We're all going to the grave. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? You ever go by like a cemetery and see some of those witty tombstones? I told Sonia the other day, I want the wittiest tombstone you can find, all right? And here's a really good one. You can read this on the screen. Remember, friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you will surely be. Prepare thyself to follow me. That's so good. Part of what Solomon is saying here is that we should enjoy our wealth and our resources while we can because life is fleeting. We talked last week about fearing God and enjoying life. And that's right. That's part of Solomon's argument here. But another thing that he's saying is that wealth and life is hevel. It's like smoke. It just dissipates right in front of you. And, and the grave awaits. And the grave doesn't discriminate against folks. Rich or poor, happy or sad, fool or wise, 
all go to the same place. So our dis here's one disappointing thing in life. It's wealth without enjoyment, and then we all go to the grave. Here's another disappointing thing. Write this down as number two. This is disappointing. Work without satisfaction. Work without satisfaction. Solomon says in, verses, in verse 7, he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. The kids still need to be fed. You work and you work and you work and it's never quite enough. And there is an insatiable desire for more. Right? You get something good, but then you need something a little better. Something with less mileage. Something with more square footage. You do a little bit more, but then you need a little more. And, and our appetites are never completely satisfied. When I was a kid, I'm not joking here, my favorite thing to eat in the world when I was a kid was peanut butter and syrup sandwiches. I'm not even joking. Take a little white bread, put some peanut butter on it, squeeze some syrup on there. Six days a week, twice on Sunday, I'd eat that. <laughs> and for breakfast, breakfast was easy. It was either Fruit Loops or Frosted Flakes. I loved it. I ate a lot of sugar when I was a kid. I was hyperactive. <laughs> but, you know, you get a little older and... You know, actually, I went to college, and then it was like ramen noodles every day. That's all I could afford. But then you get out of college, you make a little money, and you, you want some finer things in life, right? I can't even eat Fruit Loops anymore. I want the good stuff. My palate is too sophisticated for that. I need honey bunches of oats. <laughs> Give me the good stuff. I can't eat sirloins anymore. I need the filet mignon. I need the good stuff. When I was a kid, I also, I also like Hershey's chocolate. I like these crunch bars, y'all know, crunch. But then I got married to a European, and she introduced me to like real chocolate. <laughs> and now, I mean, I'm not proud of this. I'm kind of proud of this. My palate is too sophisticated for American chocolate. I need the good stuff. <laughs> All the toil of man for his mouth. Yet his appetite is never satisfied. We're not satisfied anymore with one car or two cars. We're not satisfied with one jet ski. We need two jet skis. We're not satisfied with our square footage. We're not satisfied with the clothes that we wear, or the vacations that we take. We need more. We need better. Careful now, Harvest Decatur. That's a trap, isn't it? Keeping up with the Joneses. Trying to have something better. And there's, there's this danger that lurks behind all of this. As you're, you're chasing your appetites, there's this danger, and it's called the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Right? And then you start to covet what other people want, and the things that you have just aren't quite good enough. Paul says this in Philippians 4. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Have you learned that? I'm right there with you, Harvest Decatur. I need to learn this better. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Have you learned that lesson yet? Paul says elsewhere, 1 Timothy 6, says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, 
For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's pretty primitive right there. Food and clothing. You got that? Be content. And here, let me tell you, just some advice, Harvest Decatur. Life is full of disappointment. It is full of disappointment. I mean, you probably knew that already, but if you haven't, you heard it here first. There you go. It's full of disappointment. Let me give you some wisdom. Don't let your disappointments in life lead to discontentment. Everybody with me? Don't let your disappointments in life via the means of covetousness, don't let disappointment lead to discontentment. Be content with what God has given you, even as we deal with the disappointments of life. And as it relates to buying new stuff and having new stuff and having money, like I said last week, there's nothing wrong with that. But just be careful of the trap that's part of that. Phil Riken says this, and I think this is good counsel. It says, before we buy something or eat something or turn something on, it is better for us to talk things over with our Father in heaven, saying something like this. Lord, you know how empty I feel right now. Help me to not run away from my problems, but to turn them over to you. Teach me that you are enough for me. And by your grace, give me the peace and the joy that you have for me in Jesus. Amen and amen. God, teach me that too. Look at verse 8. Solomon says, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? In other words, what Solomon is saying here is that a fool who knows how to enjoy life is better than a wise man who doesn't. A poor man who is happy with what he has is better off than a rich man who is perpetually discontent. And, and, and I mean, this is a real turning of the tables of the book of Proverbs. Because you read the book of Proverbs, you know, Solomon is a younger man. He was always talking about how it's better to be wise than to be a fool. It's better to be rich than to be poor because the rich man was industrious and the poor man wasn't. But now he's like, no, the young guy Solomon, he had it wrong. I'll give you something even better than that. As an old man, if you're rich and you can't enjoy it, you're better off being poor. If you're wise but you, you can't find contentment, you're better off being a fool and being content. That's a paradigm shift right there. Look at verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Watch out with your wandering appetites. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. You know what this is? Verse 9, it's the ancient equivalent to a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Y'all heard that before? Great expression. Bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Better is the sight of... In the, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetites. It's, it's better to be content with what you have than to be always kind of hankering after something you don't have. Don't let, here's what he's saying, don't let discontentment in life seep into your soul. Y'all remember that Aesop's fable about the dog and his bone? There's so much wisdom in those fables. You should read them to your kids. You know, the dog, he gets this juicy bone from the butcher, right? And he's, he's the happiest dog in the world. You know, he's like, he's like a pig in slop, this dog, with his bone. And he's walking home. And all of a sudden, he sees his reflection in the mirror. And, you know, he's a dog. He's dumb. 
He sees that reflection in the mirror, and he's like, well, there's a dog over there that's got a better bone than I do. And then he, y'all heard this before, right? It's a tragedy. He drops the bone into the river and jumps in after that other dog with the other bone, only to come out of the river empty-handed. He wasn't content with what he had been given. That's what this verse means. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is vanity, a striving after the wind. When I was a kid, there was, I guess a teenager, there was this song on the radio by this group called TLC called Waterfalls. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. That's what this is about. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Learn contentment. Learn to enjoy what God has given you. And here's a final disappointing thing in life. You can write this down as number three. This is probably the most disappointing of all. There's wealth without enjoyment, and then you die, and then there's work without satisfaction. And then number three, we've got questions without answers. This is maddening for us as humans. Solomon says this in verse 10. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. You know, in Hebrew thought, to name something is to control it. It's, it's, there's a sense of ownership over that. So that's why God told Adam to name all the animals. Because he was giving Adam dominion over the animals. So Adam named all the animals he had dominion. And in this verse, Solomon is saying that history has already been named. Mankind has already been named. His name is Adam. It's derived from dirt. He comes from the dirt. God has control over everything, over all history and all over, over all mankind. He is sovereignly in control of our world. That's what he's saying, and wisdom speak here. And for some people, that's frustrating. You know, they like control. Not for me. I, I'm glad God's in control. I'm glad he doesn't answer all of our questions. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named by God, in other words. And it is known by God what man is. And that it, he, man, is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The final phrase there, one stronger than he, is a reference to God. This is Solomon's way of saying God is sovereign over your life. Deal with it. Adam, deal with it, human beings. Don't, don't get angry with God. Don't try to change the equation. He's bigger than you. He's stronger than you. He knows more than you. Just trust him. Remember when Job tried to go toe-to-toe with God in the Old Testament? Remember, he's, you know, I demand for you to give me an answer. Job shaking his fist towards heaven. He demanded that God give him an explanation for what happened. What did God say to that? Do you remember from the book of Job? He said, Job, buddy, you don't even know the right questions to ask. You don't even know what you don't know. And then God goes on a rant. It's one of the best rants in the Bible. It's like four chapters, Job 38 through 42. And basically, God tells Job, where were you when, I, when the foundations of the world were laid, Job? Do you even know where the snow is kept? Do you even know how mountain goats are born? Do you even know how to create, let alone sustain, the large creatures of the world? It's just fantastic. And at the end of it, Job's like, I got nothing. 
And the Lord just puts him in his place. And the remarkable thing about the book of Job is that, you know, God never tells Job what happened at the beginning of the book. He never tells him that, you know, Satan and I had a little wager about you. He never tells him that. And Job is perfectly fine with the Lord not telling him that. He goes on, he fears the Lord, and Job understands that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And like I said, that might be discouraging for some people, but that's incredibly encouraging to me. I'm glad that we have someone who is infinitely stronger than us, because, you know, if you know yourself pretty well, you know you're pretty weak. And you sure hope there's a God who's infinitely stronger than you are. The Russian novelist and Christian, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he said this once. You can read this on the screen. He said, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and die of despair. The infinite and the eternal are as essential for man as the little planet on which he dwells. Solomon says in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. In other words, life is full of questions. And even if you get one of the deep questions of life answered, it just opens up a stream of 10 more questions that you can't get answered. And, and who knows what will happen after we're gone in this world? Who knows what's going to happen with your children and your grandchildren? What happens in America, in our world, after we're gone? We don't know. We have to leave those things to the Lord. You might say, Pastor Tony, that's depressing. Yeah, maybe it is depressing. Solomon seems a little depressed thinking about this and talking about this. If all we have is life under the sun, if that's all you have, if, if that's all you have to hope for is, is a few thrills and the few short gears that you have, and then you have a funeral and maybe a few people come and they put you in the ground. If that's all you have, if that's all you hope for, that you probably should be depressed because life goes quick and you're a shadow and it's gone and you're, be, you're put in the ground and it's over. Here today, gone tomorrow. Someday we'll have a funeral. I've told you all this before. It probably bears repeating. Someday we'll have a funeral for you. And then we'll come back to the church afterwards and we'll eat potato salad. I'll do it for you. You do it for me. If that's all you're looking for, if that's all you have, you got more than that, don't you? I heard a story this last week about the great Alabama football coach Bear Bryant. Y'all heard that name before? It's football season, isn't it? Can I use a football illustration? Just this once, all right? Bear Bryant, when he died, I mean, Alabama, in Alabama, football is like you eat, drink, and sleep football. So when he died, this great legend of college football, they had the biggest funeral you can imagine. And I heard that there was a man who was at that funeral that actually got saved after this funeral. And it's not like what you might think because he went to this funeral and Bear Bryant was like his idol. So he, he goes to his funeral and there's like thousands and thousands of people there. And actually on the way there, there's, 
You know, there's people lined up on the highway and they all have signs. We love you, Bear Bryant. We love you. Thousands and thousands of people. And then he goes to a funeral and he's like, I want a funeral like this. I'm going to be a football coach. I'm gonna, something great is going to happen in my life. But then after the funeral, he goes back and, and in that same highway, in the same cemetery, he passes by and there's nobody there. The same day. All those people left. All those people went back to work. All those people went to run some errands. Yeah, Bear Bryant died. Okay, we mourned him and now he's gone. And this guy, it terrified him. He's like, if they didn't even stick around for Bear Bryant, what are they going to do for me? I mean, there might be 100 people at my funeral. And that's what got him to think, you know, there better be something more to this life. That's what, that's what led him to the Lord. To say, I want something more than this life. I want something more than a great funeral. I want to live forever. Sure enough, that's available to you. Let me ask you, Harvest Decatur, what are you living for? What are you hoping in? I'll tell you what, if it's wealth and if it's work and if it's a great family, a great legacy, a great funeral someday, that's pretty short-lived. That's not going to last very long at all. And I hope you got something more on the horizon than that because life is short. And life is full of disappointment. And eternity is long. You know, I preached a sermon here. It was actually at the theater. Ten years ago on this subject. First Timothy chapter 4. I looked it up yesterday. It was November 19th, 2011. And I preached this sermon about, you know, how to be younger men, older men, younger women, older women in the church, like how we should relate to each other and how we should serve the Lord in the time that we have. And I made an observation 10 years ago and it went something like this. I told y'all, some of y'all are in the first quarter of life. Some of y'all are in the second quarter of life. Some of y'all are in the third quarter of life. Some of y'all are in the fourth quarter of life. And some of y'all are in overtime. <laughs> y'all remember that? I got some laughs back then too. I hate to depress you, but that was 10 years ago. So some of y'all that were in the first quarter have moved to the second quarter. <laughs> Why y'all laughing? <laughs> some of y'all that were in the second quarter have moved to the third quarter, right? Like this guy up here. That's where, I, you know, I was 33 when I preached. I was just a baby, 33. Some of y'all that were in the third quarter moved to the fourth quarter, right? Some of y'all are right on the cusp or maybe already in overtime. And I know two people, I was thinking about this yesterday, I know two people for sure that heard that sermon 10 years ago that are no longer with us. They've passed, at least two. There might be more. And honestly, it doesn't really matter whether you're in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. You're not promised another day, right? Your very life could end this afternoon for whatever reason. And if you're blindly chasing money, work, meaning, contentment apart from God you're going to die an empty death and be forgotten forever 
Can we enjoy life, Pastor Tony? Yes, you can enjoy life. Can we enjoy money and the gifts that God has given us? Yes. Solomon says as much in Ecclesiastes, but you can't enjoy your way out of death. Death is coming for all of us. What do we do about that, Pastor Tony? What are we going to do about the imminence of our death? You know the answer to that question. If I've been doing my job for the last 10 years, you know the answer to that question. How do we escape the disappointments of this life, Pastor Tony? How do we escape the certainty and finality of our impending death? You know the answer. It's one word. It's Jesus. And I am not being trite with that. I mean that with everything that is in me. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and life abundantly. Jesus said, if we put our faith in him, we will escape eternal punishment and live eternally with him. Jesus is the answer to that. You guys ever heard that song, that Fernando Ortega song? In the morning when I rise. 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 Give me Jesus. Y'all heard that before? When I go to die. When I go to die, yes, when I go to die, and when I go to die, give me Jesus. Phil Riken says this. He says, if there is no heaven, then there is no way to escape the vanity of our existence. Nothing matters. Our longings will never be satisfied. Our appetites will keep wandering forever. As a result, sometimes we will be tempted to think that we would be better off dead and no amount of complaining or arguing will change any of it. But if this life is a short preparation for a long eternity then everything matters and there will be joy for us at the right hand of God forever life is full of disappointments people if you didn't know that already you heard it here first Life is full of disappointments. Give me Jesus. Give me an eternity with him. Let me go back to Pilgrim's Progress for a second. It's a great moment at the end of that scene when Christian and faithful were on trial at at Vanity Fair So they're on trial before the people and they were actually given a chance to defend themselves. So faithful stands up and he defends himself admirably. But, you know, the jurors 
gather anyway to decide his fate. And then here's the list of jurors, according to John Bunyan. Then went the jury out, whose names were Mr. Blindman, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Lovelust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Hetty, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable. Those are the jurors. So you can probably guess what's going to happen when they deliberate. Well, they come out of their deliberations and they decide this guy faithful, he needs to die. So they kill him. They sentence him to death. They kill him themselves. He's dead. And, and then for whatever reason, at the end of that chapter, Christian is set free. So his, his beloved friend, faithful, dies. Christian is set free. But there's, there's the scene after he dies where these horses and chariots are gathered and they take up faithful. It's beautiful. And, and they take him to the celestial city. He gets fast-tracked to the celestial city. Christian's got to go back on his journey and keep journeying along. And so Christian starts his journey. He leaves Vanity Fair, and then he sings this song, and it's a great song. It goes like this. Well, faithful thou hast faithfully professed unto thy Lord, with whom thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, faithful, sing, and let thy name survive. For though they killed thee, thou art yet alive. Listen, Harvesticator, life is hard. It is. It's full of disappointments. It's short. It's full of vanity and hardships and cruelty and injustice. Yes, there are pleasures in this life, but not nearly enough, and they don't last. And you will die, probably sooner than you want. For those of you who die in Christ, you will live forever in eternity with him. You will put vanity and chasing the wind in your rear view, and you will never, ever experience vanity again for the rest of your life. Put your hope in that. Put your faith in Christ and he will turn even the most profound disappointments in this life into unending joy in his presence forever. Pray with me. We can sing together. Lord, I can't even imagine the heartache represented in a room like this. Maybe people tuning in online right now who have experienced deep disappointment in life. The death of loved ones, the loss of health, the loss of employment, the struggle to survive, the struggle with sin. Lord, it's a hard life that we live. And Solomon doesn't sugarcoat any of it here.
But God, in your mercy, you have made a way to live forever without any disappointments hovering over us. In your grace and in your mercy, you loved us. You saved us. You died for us. You went to the cross. You paid for our sin. How do we escape the disappointments of life? How do we escape and overcome the imminent impending death that all of us have to face? One word. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. We love you. We put our faith in you, Lord. And Jesus, I pray that as we seek you, as we study your word, as we are filled with your Holy Spirit, that you would help us in the here and now. Lord, yes, eternity is coming, but in the here and now, help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help this church, help Harvest Decatur to make disciples and grow disciples that serve you faithfully, that live life joyfully as we await eternity. I pray that. Do that in this church, I pray. Jesus.